there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you love movies, and who doesn't, and the entertainment industry, and you're skilled in a variety of software applications, then you are definitely going to want to stay tuned for my next guest. But before I introduce you to Arby Duzakarian, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a one-stop shop peek inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number 4coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my Pikes Peak drinking post-production lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is Arby Duzakarian who until recently was the Senior Director of Operations and Post-Production at IMAX Corporation. For those of you who've never experienced an IMAX movie, those are the ones where the screen reaches all the way up to the ceiling of the theater and they have speakers that put you in the middle of the action. According to Wikipedia, it is a proprietary system of high-resolution and steep stadium seating. Prior to working at IMAX, Arby was the executive director of customer service at Deluxe Digital Cinema, in which he maintained 24-7, 365 days a year support of a 4,500 movie theater operation all across the U.S. and Canada. Arby, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Absolutely. I'm having my second cup right now and just want to thank you so much for having me on. Oh my gosh, it is my pleasure. As I told you just before we started recording, sometimes what I do to find really interesting guests is to go onto LinkedIn and just kind of scroll through. And when I saw your profile, Arby, I was like, dang, IMAX. First of all, I love IMAX movies. And secondly, I guess I just didn't know that, of course, there would be a post-production piece and an operational piece, but... I don't really know anything about this field, so I am super grateful to you for making the time to sit down and have a virtual coffee with me. Well, thank you. The sentiments are the same from me to you. So just like the proprietary IMAX experience, Arby, this is a somewhat unique time for coffee experience for me because recently you made the very courageous decision to quit your terrific job at IMAX, right? That is correct. Yeah. And it was a great job. Well paying too, but it was time for me to leave. You told me that you decided to leave IMAX in May of 2019 to find a better fit. And as you had noted to me, you'd had two promotions during the four and a half years you spent there and you found great success, but you didn't feel like IMAX was going to be your future. Before we get into what you were doing in your last job at IMAX, could you please share with our listeners, Arby, why you decided to cut the cord on your own and leap into the great unknown? Well, 
I was satisfied with the salary and I was satisfied with belonging to a company that you help or in this case, I helped achieve its goals. But I wasn't satisfied with myself as to fulfilling my career goals of doing something where I felt like I'm making a mid to big impact on something. It doesn't have to be something where we're helping people or what have you. In this case, I work in entertainment. So I wanted my impact to be more than just theatrical distribution of movies that other people have made. I felt like we would take the ball on the last couple of yards and finish it. But I wanted to be running the ball sooner than that if that makes sense. So you just want to get involved earlier in the process. Right. Or have some kind of unique voice, whether it's something I'm doing on my own, which I've thought about. That's part of why I left, I think, because I wanted to explore what opportunities are there as an independent entertainer. It is enlightening and motivating to see these individuals on YouTube making it on their own, where they're making two, three videos a week or less and still being able to have a salary where they can pay the bills, etc. So that part of it also enticed me, I believe, to leave to see if there's anything I can do on my own in the entertainment industry. So why do you feel you couldn't figure that out while you were still at IMAX, still earning that good salary? I felt like as long as that was there, that was my safety blanket, I wasn't really taking the chances I would without the safety blanket. So I felt like I needed to cut that cord, as you said, in order to really push myself to the next level, I can tell you this is the fourth week and it's definitely has worked. I was having a conversation yesterday with a friend and she was asking me how it's going. And I said, I have to define myself now before it was easy. Who are you? Well, I work at IMAX. I'm the senior director of post-production operations. Those two lines alone already give me a definition. Now I have to kind of, well, what do you do? I don't know. What do I do? So that puts me in a very interesting position to figure it out in a more aggressive manner than if I had stayed. How scary was it for you to take this step? Well, your listeners may or may not believe me, but it's the truth. While I had thought about it quite a bit, the decision was on the spot. It was a moment in a day where I felt like, okay, it's time. And I just typed up the resignation email and I sent it out. And it got scarier after that, Andrea. (laughs) (laughs) So wait a minute. You did not plan ahead to do this? Not concretely, absolutely not. I am not kidding. It was a momentary decision and I haven't regretted it since. And it's been a wonderful feeling. The only thing is I have to just keep reminding myself to be patient with certain things as they're not going to come as quickly, such as while I'm trying to do something creative on my own right now, whether it might end up being a podcast or a YouTube channel, I am still looking for a job because my funds are going to last only so many months. After that, I need to pay the bills and have a health insurance again, which you don't think about these things until afterwards. You're like, oh, yeah, I don't have health insurance. So those are interesting factors. So was it just that you'd had a shitty day or had gotten an email from somebody that pissed you off? (laughs) What was it? No, I was. I'll be honest with you. I was in a meeting. The meeting didn't go the way I felt like was appropriate. So I just felt like I wanted to 
exit at that point and just be part of a different work culture, I guess. Yeah. Well, look, that takes such a huge amount of courage because God knows, I think anybody who's had a job has had moments where we're like, I wish I could just go in there and quit. Right. And when you do, when you do have those opportunities or you just decide like whether you've got that next job lined up or whatever, when you do quit, it's often like a really empowering feeling. I can tell you that the two weeks after that decision, I was the most confident I've ever been in my life. I don't want to get into it too much, but I felt bullied through elementary school, even high school. I mean, there's literal stories I can tell you where I was bullied and I'm very sensitive to being bullied. So to find your own voice is a very strong feeling to come about you. And that's what happened to me. And I do want your listeners to know that I had put money aside. I mean, to be a little more literal, I have about a one year runway. So while, yes, the decision was made on the spot. I had already figured things out in my head as to what I can do and what I cannot do. While it is a brave thing I did, I do agree. It isn't a point where I have nothing lined up. And no, I had a year's put away and I feel like I'm fortunate. I don't think a lot of people have that great opportunity. And I come from a blue collar family. So the salary I was getting I've never seen money like that in the past. And to leave it, that was a very difficult decision, too. But also coming from a lower place, you know how it feels to be of that lower income. So it's not as scary because you've already had it. And I have no doubt, Arby, that you are going to find that great next job. I have no doubt because you're clearly an incredibly talented professional and the way that you have worked your way up in every company that you've worked for is proof positive that you're somebody who is an overachiever. So I have no doubt you're going to not only you're not going to land on your feet, you're going to reach that mountaintop. So Arby, let's talk about what you were doing at IMAX before you quit. You were working there four and a half years. Your last job was Senior Director of Operations and Post-Production. First of all, what does that mean? What are operations and what is post-production? When you go see an IMAX movie, you're actually, yes, you're seeing the same exact movie as the audience next door at the non-IMAX auditorium. But IMAX has actually remastered that picture. There is a difference because we are, and I'm still saying we, Andrea, because IMAX is uh, projecting on larger screens, there's a necessity to clean up the picture. And the audio is a different format as well. So because of those two reasons, IMAX has to go through the post-production process on its own to clean up the picture and then put everything back together. And I mean everything. So you have audio, you have picture and, you know, IMAX is in, I think, almost 80 countries. So you have a bunch of subtitle versions, a bunch of dub versions, and you have to get it out into the world. In the digital world, most big movies open the same day. So you have to fulfill all these locations to open on the same day. And that requires a lot of planning, a lot of logistics. My operations manager, she was so brilliant in putting all that together. So there's a lot that goes into getting a movie from the vendor who finishes the picture and audio to then getting it to the theater. That's the gap where we were at. 
including the remastering of the picture. Okay, so that sounds like that's the post-production side. What is the operational side? So the operations takes over right after post-production. So the last step of post-production is checking the movie for quality. So if you're watching a subtitle version, you want to make sure that the language is correct from the start of the movie till the end and that no subtitles are missing. So once that's done, post-production hands the movie over to operations and it's the operation group's duty to get the files, we're working with digital after all, to the theaters around the world. So logistics, and I'm not sure if your listeners know, movies are encrypted. They have a high level encryption. So they require a key to unlock it. The key tells the system, okay, you can unlock on Friday and lock up again next Saturday, for example. So operations team make sure those keys are booked properly for the right length and the length is dictated between IMAX and the studios and send those to the theaters as well so they can unlock the movie or else they're not going to be able to show the movie. Okay. Wow. So there's, it's almost like there is a cybersecurity piece to the job. Yes, absolutely. I mean, digital cinema has allowed the studios to protect their content much more than they were able to when it was 35 millimeter projection. I'm going to ask you next about your job responsibilities and the primary functions of your position. But before I do, Arby, I'm curious, do you think someone who is not a terribly organized person should consider thinking of another line of work before they go into or try to get into the post-production operations world? Yes, absolutely. They, they should consider something else. Look, there's different ways of keeping organized. My it might not work the same way yours does, Andrea, but at the end of the day, if we're both successful, it shouldn't matter. But then there are ways where it's just not organization. You're just not organized. So when I would walk around the office, I had 12 things running through my head and I have to use notes, etc., to remind myself, OK, what do I need to follow up? It's so easy to forget to respond to a vendor or a client in the middle of getting calls and attending meetings. So organization is absolutely key to success in this side of the business. It sounds like organization and a high level of multitasking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So take us through, break down what your various job responsibilities were, RB, and if you were looking to hire somebody for that job, what were the primary functions? How would you have described the job? My job, I had six direct reports. It was the trailer department, the mastering department. The mastering department puts the movie together in a file. And then I had the operations team that included keys. And then there was a shipping group that reported to me. So I was running day to day post-production and operation. So I was in a lot of meetings in discussing future planning for future titles. There are certain titles that require more attention than others. And I was also part of talks and meetings about how do we innovate? How do we add technology to our day-to-day to make our lives a little better? So my job was really focused on mid to long term goals. How do I make it better for my team? How do I get tools that will make my team's lives and jobs easier and better and more efficient and more error proof? So while I looked at that, the six managers that reported to me ran the day to day 
I run around a lot between meetings and phone calls, et cetera. But my team and I would text each other quite often, even though we were in the same building. So that was a good way for me to keep communicating with them. And, you know, I like to grow a management team from within. And I can say that I think, if I'm not mistaken, I hired everyone from within. Whoever I didn't inherit, I hired from within because we were already fostering such young talent. It would be silly of me to go outside to find that. And when I would look for them, whether it was an internal or an external candidate, I'm looking for critical thinkers, problem solvers, autonomous workers, because like I said, I wasn't around all the time due to long meetings or a lot of meetings. So I'm looking for responsible, mature individuals who will drive the business forward, who will be careful of details. There's a lot of details. You miss one word here or you misplace a word there and all of a sudden you got the wrong directions. For example, a sensor cut for Kuwait. And that's another thing we haven't talked about, but that adds complexity. There's still censorship in the world, and we had to take care of that in post-production as an added wrinkle of duties. Oh, my goodness. So if you had to give me a laundry list of the different responsibilities that you had, what would that list include? Management for one, so the six directs, and I'm a very involved manager. I definitely like to get down to the indirect level. And so I had a lot of indirect reports coming to me for career advice, life advice, how to deal with a problem at work, et cetera. So management and team building are very high on my list, but so is task management. I wouldn't use the words project manager in the literal sense of the career, but a lot of task management, I would find my own projects to run to make IMAX efficient, whether it was saving dollars on shipments, physical shipments out to the theaters, or finding ways to possibly reduce overtime by adding the headcount that was necessary. So it's looking at workflows, you know, that was another big piece. Sometimes you come into a job and you start asking, well, why do we do it this way? And you keep hearing, that's how it's always been done. I'm not into that. I'm all about disrupting and innovating. I don't like disrupting just to say I disrupted, but There is a lot of room for disruption nowadays because of digital software innovation. And that's another piece. I was so thankful we had this great internal software team at IMAX that developed proprietary software based on my team's input and my input. And so that was another area where I was really involved getting those software to create efficiencies that we couldn't get out of a very popular software, for example, like Microsoft Excel. Great. So what were you doing? What were the operations post-production functions that Mm -hmm. you were responsible for? So in the post-production world, there's a lot of moving the material around from one group to another. So I had to keep my eye out on the project itself, whether it was a trailer that came in late And so we had to look at the trailer really quickly because the client was coming in. I would go into the theater with my management team and we would have to critically look at certain things and make decisions on the spot as to how are we going to deal with a problem or short term delivery where we had to turn things around. So there was a lot of decisions made as a group based on what we were looking at. And we could have been looking at like a dot 
on the screen? Is this something that we need to call out to the studio to come look at? Or was this intended? Who do we need to get on the phone with to figure out if we got the latest delivery? And that's another thing. So when you're dealing with post-production, you get the delivery and you think you're really well off because you got it early, for example. And then the production team calls you and says, well, whatever I've sent you so far, scrap that. We redid it after we sent it. (laughs) So then we start all over again. And okay, so that wasn't planned for. So how do we handle the movie that we were planning to work on right after this one? Because now we have another movie to work on, even though it's the same one, of course, but you get the files again. So it's that kind of world where post-production is different perhaps from other jobs of constant communication with the studios, constantly getting updates, taking the movies to that last minute and having to make decisions on what to move around to make sure that not only the movie that they're re-delivering is successful, but the one afterwards too. I would really feel bad for the movie afterwards because they would, you know, we would have to protect it because (laughs) those guys delivered on time. It wasn't their fault that this other movie delivered twice. Those kind of interesting moments that make post-production unique. And like I said, I would roll up my sleeve. So I would go into the editing bay and the team would ask me questions. And it's that's the part where right now when I'm describing to you, I would get really energized because it was the creative side of things. And so I've helped fix a few things in my time. And and my staff would often joke that I was a tech light. So I was a technician, but light, not heavy. Things like that make post-production very unique, very different. So when you are doing post-production at IMAX, RB, I'm guessing it involves not only the trailers, but also the movies themselves. Are there any other products that you might be working on other than the trailers and the movies? Yes. So the great thing about IMAX is it has its own marketing team. And so our marketing team would create unique clips or promotional material for our screens and we would get to work on that as well. We finished everything. In fact, in those cases, we would get involved even more because there wasn't a studio behind it. It was just IMAX. So those were really creative and it's nice. So again, back to me adding creative notes, I would sit with marketing and I would ask them, hey, do you mind if I give you some notes? And they didn't mind. And that collaboration was really interesting, too. It could have been a decision about aspect ratio, for example, and how the piece could start in scope and open to flat, things like that we would talk about. And that's, you know, in layman terms, that's starting a piece where the screen isn't filled and then opening it up to fill it. Now, that wasn't my decision, but it was those kinds of collaborative discussions we would have. And that was great. So, yeah, a lot of internal projects that I worked on while I was there, especially in the beginning, because I started as manager of trailers and any promotional item would fall under me. So, Arvi, if I had to paint the picture kind of broad brushstrokes on the products that you were managing, it would include movies that were coming to you from other studios. It would include trailers also from those other studios that had maybe been at other production facilities. And then you had unique content that was coming from IMAX itself. But with those other films, you were having to adjust the 
quality of the film so that it could be shown on the big IMAX movie screens. Is that right? That's correct. All the movies that came through run through a proprietary process called DMR, Digital Media Remastering. That's IMAX's proprietary process of cleaning up the movies. And, you know, we're talking about grain and noise. Those are the key words. So when you project on a much larger screen, you could see the noise easier. That would clean it up. And so we process that both artists. So there's a human element and machine time. And there's a rendering element as well where the machine is doing some of the cleanup. Okay. So for somebody who's interested in still pictures, it would be the equivalent of like pixels and the higher resolution for a still picture. Correct. It's like going through, let's say, a photograph from the 80s and cleaning it up to look more presentable on today's technology. I'm exaggerating to make the point, but that's what the rendering does in the machine time. And the artist would look at a clip, for example, let's say the clip is five seconds. They would look at it on loop and look for those elements that require some cleanup that the machine had left alone through the algorithm, for example. Okay. Great. Thank you for that. So, Arby, take us into an average day when you were at IMAX. What would we be seeing and hearing you do if we were a fly on the wall kind of following you around? Usually in the mornings, I would check with my team just to see how things are going. Then I'm looking at email. Then more than likely, I have a series of meetings discussing software innovation or how are we going to handle a certain release. The great thing about IMAX is once in a while we would do an exclusive and those were really fun to work on because no other theater is showing it. So things like that would require more meetings, more attention. Throughout the whole time, I'm keeping an eye on the process of certain movies and where they are in the timeline, as we just discussed. Is it going through the remastering process? Is it with the coordinators going through versioning in the mastering department who puts all the elements together? And I'm having discussions about key points. I would really rely heavily on my managers to kind of bring me in at a point of escalation so that I didn't have to worry about the regular, normal day-to-day. I would only want to deal with the irregularities. There was a high trust between me and my managers. I knew that they got the day-to-day handled, but I wanted to be involved with the irregularities and the points of escalation. I could be talking with clients on the phone because they're upset that something didn't deliver on time, or they're upset that a booking wasn't filled at all, and they want to know why. So I'm looking at emails, I'm talking to the team to see how it was missed, I'm taking care of that. And at the same time, I'm working with other clients, for example, to connect their systems to ours so that there doesn't have to be a point of human touch between two points of information that it can just come right through their digital system. So looking at the future, looking at the day and looking ahead at next week, a lot of what I did. And, you know, once in a while I would step in and help out a client screening because someone was out sick or on vacation. I tried to kind of take care of the back house and there were others that dealt with the clients, but whenever necessary, I had that kind of experience in the past, so I had no problem with running with a client, running a screening. Okay, got it. Now, something that 
we discussed in the Espresso Shots episode, and I recommend for our listeners, if they're interested in learning more about how to break into this industry, they should check out show notes to see if the Espresso Shots episode has already been released. But one of the things that we discussed, RB, is the fact that your background educationally at USC was in cinema. You were a double major, but not the production side of cinema. You were doing critical studies and your double major included a degree also in communication. So how did you learn the production side? How hard was it to learn all of this? Well, it kind of came naturally to me, to be honest with you, but it isn't easy either. When IMAX hired me, I didn't really have any post-production experience. At Deluxe, I ran the call center, the customer service center, and I learned a lot about digital cinema in that setting, how keys worked, and keys are electronic files that unlock the movies, how to read a movie file. So I got my feet wet there, but it wasn't until IMAX that I really dove in. And I just had great colleagues who kind of showed me the ropes and I'm a pretty quick learner. So I picked up on the ideas and that's where you want to start. You have to understand the concept before you understand how it's done. You have to understand why and what is done. And so once I learned the why and the what, I would ask certain coworkers, hey, can you teach me how to master a DCP, for example? Now, I came in at a management level. I had no business mastering a DCP, but I've always been a tech guy and that stuff always has resonated with me. So I have passion for it and I haven't wrapped a DCP often, maybe five times max while I was at IMAX. But those five times I learned something and I learned the process and it's good to know the process because when you're talking to your team or others and if you don't know how to use the words because you don't know how it's done, it's really difficult to be on the same page of communication and things can take longer. So I really like getting into the weeds and I just learned all by doing it, I guess. And that's kind of how we teach our employees anyway. A lot of the employees we hire while I was there four and a half years, we had one or two employees that we hired from the outside that came in with some knowledge. Everyone else, we had to train from the ground up. So there's a lot of just hands-on training happening in post-production, in my opinion. Okay. So one quick point of clarification. <laughs> what is a DCP? Ah, digital cinema package. That's what the electronic file that does the movie that has a lot of files inside it is called a DCP. So these packages are can range from 100 gigabytes up to 350 gigabytes. But that's what's being played back unless you're going to a 35 millimeter or 70 millimeter special showing. And they're, those are very rare these days. That's uh, Christopher Nolan or uh, Quentin Tarantino. They're keeping that art form alive. And I'm thankful for that, to be honest with you. But other than that, it's all digital cinema packages out there, which is DCPs. Okay, thank you. And what I really loved hearing you talk about, RB, is the initiative that you took to learn above and beyond and the fact that you would ask colleagues to help you. I think that is so important 
to try to expand your knowledge base and take advantage of where you are to do that. Not always feel that either being embarrassed to ask or just not curious enough to want to learn. So kudos to you. I want to flash back just very quickly to when you were in college, you went to USC to the University of Southern California, where you double majored in communications and cinema. Did you know what you were going to do with those degrees when you graduated in 2003? No, I I had no idea what I was going to do when I graduated. I went to USC with aspirations of wanting to be a writer, director, and wanting to get into production. And I tried four times and I didn't get in, but I was pretty resilient. I didn't let it bother me. It was around that time when I added the second major of communications. I was like, okay, I don't know if jobs are going to be looking at this critical studies major and not thinking highly of it. So let me add a backup. So I added a second major and I just continued to do well at USC. I graduated with a pretty good GPA, in my humble opinion. And when I graduated, I was like, okay, it's time to find a job and kind of earn a living. And I took the first thing that came, to be honest with you, Andrea. And what was that? So how did you break into this really competitive industry? So my first job was kind of outside the realm of entertainment. Believe it or not, yes, I went to USC, but UCLA was the first company or college to hire me. And I was working in their film archives. They have a pretty extensive collection. I was working on the Hearst Newsreel collection which is printed on nitrate film, which is highly flammable and has to be kept in these vaults so that if any vault goes or bursts into flames, the other vaults are not affected. It was a really interesting job, but it was very simple. It had nothing to do with having a degree or whatnot. We were just taking the film and putting it in better cans and just logging the information. So that was my first job out of USC. I noticed on your resume and on LinkedIn, RB, that you had at least a couple of internships while you were in college. How did you get those internships and did they help you at all in securing a paying job when you graduated? So I went to USC's cinema school and they had a place where I can go through postings for internships. And that's how I found a couple of them. And I just did two. One of them was very short because I just didn't feel like I was doing anything productive. So they were just having me answer the phone, et cetera. The second one was much better. It was in a story department of a production company. And so all the scripts came through there. To be frank, I mainly just made photocopies and it was an unpaid two days a week internship. But the exposure I got to how people carry themselves in an office setting So I really, that's that's the exposure that I took away. Although a year or two, actually it was a year after the UCLA job, I did get a phone call from them and there was a potential offer that didn't pan out, but it did come around actually. So that was interesting. So what advice do you have, RB, for our young listeners who would like to break into the operations or the post-production side of the entertainment industry? I'd say to do at least two internships while you're in college and leverage those internships by networking. When you leave an internship, you should have some contacts in your phone book from that company, whether they will 
help you get another opportunity at another job or the same company, there is a lot of opportunity there. Other than that, you know, when we would hire for a coordinator position, and that's kind of like the entry level position, we would look at all kinds of backgrounds. We were just looking for a good fit. So coming in at a coordinator level, in my opinion, should not be too difficult. Once you're in, then it's, you know, you prove yourself with the kind of work you do. But we've hired all kinds of backgrounds. It's not necessarily just film. It's people who we sometimes interview people who thought they wanted to do X, but changed their minds. And now they want to be in the movie industry because that's what they really love is movies. And I'm not looking at the paper when I'm interviewing. I want to know what this person is about. Are they responsible? Are they going to be on time? Are they passionate? Are they critical thinkers? Do they think outside of the box? Can they innovate a little bit, even at a coordinator level? I just want to hear good ideas. It doesn't matter what level it's coming from. So I had great relationships with coordinators that gave me great ideas that some got implemented into our business. Terrific. So we're down to our two final time for coffee questions that I try to ask all of my guests, Arby. The first one is, could you share a time in your professional life when you really struggled. Some of us have been fired. Some of us have had really challenging bosses or co-workers. But the most important thing here is how you persevered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. So there was a time before IMAX where I had to leave a company and it wasn't a decision that I made. And I don't want to get too much into that, but it was a really low point in my career. I had worked there a long time and it was a time to move on, but it wasn't a decision I made. So I wasn't confident about the situation. So I kind of rebooted my career at that point in a maybe not a great way, but it ended up working out. I took an entry level job at a company and I worked there for seven months, entry level pay. And that was fine. I, I was actually glad I was working. I like working a lot. I like that kind of structure. I was there for seven months and I did the best I could. I actually made a lot of positive impacts. So it took 11 months to kind of get back on my feet. So the advice I would give to your listeners is sometimes when you're in it, it feels like it's lasting forever. But once you get out of that negative situation and in a much more positive one, you look back, even in my case, which was 11 months, now looking back, it feels like, oh, that was okay. At least it was in a year. I like to look at it in a positive way. What I use to motivate myself is when I see an athlete traded or a coach fired, I like to follow sports a lot. I go, oh, wow, that's a big name and they're getting fired or that's a big name athlete and they're getting traded. Everyone goes through this. It's those who are resilient and who keep punching back or who keep applying or who keep going out there for more interviews. Or if you want to be an actor, you keep going out for those acting jobs. If you keep showing up, your probability is going to go up to succeed again. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest takeaways for me from having interviewed well over 150 professionals at this point and based on my own life experience is one of the most important qualities you can try to cultivate is grit. You mentioned resilience. That's another way of saying it is just the ability to put your head down and keep putting one foot in front of the other and move forward 
keep moving forward. If you can surround yourself with people who have a positive attitude, that will help. And try not to let yourself slip into a negative frame of mind. You will persevere. You will break through. But you have to keep trying, just as you said, Arby. Absolutely. Keep busy. Keep busy. Try new things. Look at new avenues you haven't looked at before. You never know what's down an alley. It might be something you're even more passionate about that you didn't know about yourself. Yes. Someone else I've interviewed whose episodes are out there on the Time for Coffee website is Eugenia Harvey. And in the main Time for Coffee interview I did with her, she mentioned about how she always takes meetings. She always takes whoever it is that reaches out to her for an opportunity to sit down with her because you never know what's going to come out of it. Absolutely. Uh, It's so funny you mentioned that because right now I'm in a mode of I'm trying to say yes as much as I can. So whoever asks me to go to an art show or what have you, yes, yes, yes. You never know. First of all, get out of the house is a great thing anyway, but you never know who you're going to meet and be genuine about it because that's what people look for. That's what professionals look for. They want a genuine person. Yeah. And opportunities lie in all different places. You never know when that potential employer is going to bump into you at an art gallery, right? And you just strike up a casual conversation because you're both admiring the same picture. And it's like, oh, gosh, you sound like you know a lot about this. What do you do? What did you do? What did you study? And the next thing you know, they're saying, give me a call. I'd love to talk with you about a potential job we have. So I love that attitude, Arby. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, back to USC and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Network more is what I would say. I wish I had a close knit group of friends and we were going through this journey of career together. I didn't network enough. So when I left school, I just left with what I learned and and the classroom information. I wasn't very social and that's not really healthy for this industry, probably for any industry really. And even when we talk about MBA programs, yes, I'm sure. And again, I've, I've never done it, but I've talked to several people who have. There's a lot you learn in class, but also the opportunity to meet like-minded people who have similar passions. And it's much easier to do this as a collective than alone in a collaborative way. And a lot of what we do in post-production, for example, is collaborate. There's no way any one person can do it all. We have to work as a team together. And I'm just learning to build that network. I'm still very much in touch with my colleagues at IMAX. If I need help in an area where they're more experts at, such as editing or what have you, I call them for advice, etc. It's always good to have a good circle of professional friends. Oh my goodness. I agree a hundred percent. And in fact, another professional I interviewed, Lauren Handel Zander, she's actually a life coach and you can listen to her episode on Time for Coffee. She says very much the same thing about how if she could have gone back to college, she would have gotten a B in whatever course she was taken. But 
an A in networking and making friends, not only with her classmates, but also with her professors. So I could not agree with you more about looking at your time in college or grad school and on the job as an opportunity to build your personal slash professional network. Arby, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I have no doubt you are going to find your next passion project, whether it's in the YouTube world, whether it's at another big company or a startup. And I hope you will come back and give us an update and let us know how you found that next job, because I am so excited to hear and see how your career evolves from here on out. Thank you so much. Thank you. It has been a pleasure speaking with you and sharing these stories. And I would love to. It would be my honor to come back and do a part to hopefully a success story, Andrea. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.